Today, a place to stay when you have no place to stay. Welcome to Coffee with Kramer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Kramer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. Look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. We're actually doing the 43rd Psalm today, the next Psalm as I'm working through this book. And uh, it fits so tightly with Psalm 42 that the first thing I need to do is just sort of remind us how it relates to that psalm. And it, 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 it relates inevitably, by the way. Uh, for one thing, this, this is the second book of the Psalms I mentioned to you last time when we were doing Psalm 42, the last scripture episode, uh, when we were doing Psalm 42, that, uh, that this begins the second book of the Psalms, which goes all the way down through 72, and one of the things that inevitably relates Psalm 43 to Psalm 42 is just that there's no superscript on Psalm 43. And there are a lot of other psalms that don't have a superscript, but not in this second book of the psalms. They, they all seem to have this heading, except for number 43. Maybe there are one or, or two other exceptions, but I haven't gotten there yet. But, uh, on, but this one doesn't, and it's notable so that draws your attention to the possibility, but then a lot more importantly than that, the last verse of this psalm is the same phrasing, and, and, and in fact, exactly the same wording, depending on how you break one verse, but it's, it's the same wording that you have twice in Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. That's Psalm 43, verse 5, and the same thing is Psalm 42, verse 5, and Psalm 42, verse 11. So if there were three stanzas to this psalm, we would just say it was one psalm, and Psalm 42 is, contains two of those, and Psalm 43 contains the third stanza. But um, it is also possible that they're not. Now, they do carry the same theme, by the way, also. So they, they just relate together in every possible way. If there weren't a number, we would just assume this was the conclusion to Psalm 42. <clears throat> However, there is a number. And if you pay attention to the details, and, and this is the first time that I've gone through the entire book of Psalms, and I mean all the books of the Psalms, but all, uh, all of the Psalms, piece by piece, and paid attention to the vocabulary and the metaphors and making sure that I'm catching what's going on in each psalm. And so if you pay attention to the details, it's actually interesting that Psalm 43 is a lot more like the first 41 psalms, uh, meaning it's a lot more like the Davidic psalms. So I know that it's possible that we could simply say, uh, Psalm 43 is the rest of Psalm 42, and somebody just happened to put a division in it. That doesn't hurt anything because we don't think the divisions are inspired, so we don't care. Uh, that's possible. It could be that Psalm 43 is an addendum to Psalm 42, that at some point God inspired someone to write another psalm, 
and it follows the same theme, and so they put it right next to it to say, and also, if you wanted to add on a little more, here's some more of that idea, fine. But, it, it, but, but in my opinion, and look, I'm, I've done discourse analysis for ages. It's part, it was part of my doctoral program. I, you know, I'm not a, I, I'm, I, have, I have credentials to make this claim, but I, but I will say to you, you, don't, you, you shouldn't be so nervous about thinking about things like this. The people who analyze these documents it's not like we're picking up a volume that has everything explained about it from 1000 BC. That's not the case. Uh, we're getting documents after they've been revised and edited and brought down to us in the form of manuscripts that have been reviewed and translated and so on. And, and they're very intelligent people who are doing all of this work for us, and I believe God has a hand in preserving his word. So I don't have any qualms about that at all. I think that's part of the process of him preserving his word. But, but you know, it's reasonable for us to draw our own conclusions from the text uh, if there's sufficient evidence to make a claim. So I'm not making this as a claim, but as an observation, if I were trying to speculate about how Psalm 42 and 43 came to be so closely related in their content, I would say Psalm 43 was around as a psalm, and then the sons of Korah, these beautiful, uh, these, these experts who were writing beautiful psalms, complex, detailed psalms uh, without, you know, just glorious metaphors in them, like Psalm 42, that they wrote Psalm 42 on the basis of Psalm 43. That would be my guess. It's just a wild guess, but it's worth mentioning to get started. So anyway, okay, now, so let's take Psalm 43. In the context of Psalm 42, again, the themes are related. So as a reminder, in Psalm 42, we were taught about where we find comfort when we're distant from God. And what we ended up with is acknowledging that we are in the desert because we have wandered from God's fountain. We've wandered from God's ta tabernacle or temple, you know, depending on, and the sons of Korah writing this, so it'd be a temple at that point. But ho however we're taking it, it's to, you know, God's dwelling place in Jerusalem, especially. So we're in the desert because we wandered from God's fountain, but God's fountain flows everywhere. So even out in the in the wilderness, we can hear deep calling to deep. We hear the, the, the sound of his voice, and we are overflowed, uh, over, I was going to say overflown. We're overflowed by the mercy and love that's in his breakers, in his waves, even while we're out in the wilderness and away from him. So by the day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And so we recalled that God's mercy is given to us in the form of the worship that we're able to offer back to him even while we're out in the wilderness. And it's really a magnificent reminder of how important worship is for the people of God. And you can, you can see in Psalm 42 how important that would be to the sons of Korah who are guiding the people of Israel in their worship. So it's sort of a perfect beginning to the second book of the Psalms. Then we come to Psalm 43. That's where we begin today. So Psalm 42 ends with the second stanza's conclusion, why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's how that one ends. 
And then it begins, if it, whether we're doing it with continuity or not, we begin Psalm 43 with these words, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? That's the first two verses. I'll read the rest of the psalm because it's only five verses. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down? He returns to the chorus. O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So the the psalm is, you know, really the first two verses presenting the problem nice and clearly. I have these adversaries, and there's something that's oppressing me in some way. And then the next two verses give us sort of a solution to that problem as the the person who's praying or singing, in this case, worshiping, uh, requests it. So here's what I here's what I seek, God, do this. And then it ends with the repetition of that chorus that reminds me of my current condition while still inviting me to continue in this praise or worship of God. So we want to put those three things together and sort of understand what's going on with them. And I, I want to I want today, more than any other time, to emphasize that these are not exceptional psalms. These are not exceptional statements. They are the standard. And in particular, I want to bring comparison to one book that we think is exceptional, which is actually just a part of this exact same standard uh, throughout the Old Testament. So we'll get to it uh, before very long in just a moment. So first of all, starting out with the first two verses, which are the problem. First of all, there's the problem, which is adversity from our enemies. So they're, you know, they're just people who oppose what we're trying to do. And this is part of the reality of the world. And this becomes a really important part of what he's describing in this psalm, even though it disappears right after this. It is a really important line in the psalm. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man would you please, God, deliver me? That's the prayer of verse 1. And it does hark back to Psalm 42, verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Uh, because I, you know, the, the, the uh, picture here is that there are people who are opposed to my relationship with God, whether it's because they're from another nation or whatever it is, or because they simply oppose my authority over them. Because remember, this is often in the context of Israel representing God to the peoples of the world, hence the nations, or mimicking David, their messianic voice, uh, and his authority over Israel. So as he says, you know, they're, they're rejecting me. They, they are, I need you to deliver me from them. Their cry is, you know, probably similar to what they were saying in Psalm 42. Where is your God? And so I have nothing to appeal to but my misery. So there's one description of the problem. We have people who oppose us. That's part of the reality of the world. But the, the real problem emerges in the second verse. 
for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Now, that's not a problem. That makes perfect sense, right? Vindicate me, O God, because you are the God in whom I take refuge. That sounds great. Unfortunately, there's a semicolon instead of a period, and it says, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Remember I had said in Psalm 42, it's my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And so he's saying to, to, to God in this prayer, vindicate me, O God, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And, and, in, and this is even worse, and this is why I say Psalm 42 may just be built off of Psalm 43, the opposite way, uh, opposite of the direction in which we normally think of it. Because in Psalm 42, there's, there is a similar cry, a similar appeal. God, why are you doing this to me? But in Psalm 42, in the ninth verse, it is, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? That statement, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy, is identical to what he says in this psalm, Psalm 43. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of, uh, of the enemy? So what he's done is replaced, you are the God in whom I take refuge. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll say it the other way. He replaces in Psalm 42, he says, I say to the God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? He replaces that in this psalm with something worse. You are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? He, even, he, he didn't just forget. He hasn't just overlooked my need. He has rejected me. He has outright thrown me out or refused to open the door to my plea. And so, you know, in Psalm 42, when he's saying, these things, he follows with, you know, it's, it's, it's like I have a deadly wound in my bones and my adversaries are taunting me with it while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And now he's basically joining them and saying, where are you? Indeed, where are you? I say to God, my rock, my re uh, the God in whom I take refuge, why have you rejected me? Why have you sent me out? And this is not new. So in, in the 20, it, now I mentioned this last time in, in Psalm 42, but you, you have to recognize the similarity with what's going on in the Messianic Psalm that we know best, Psalm 22, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now you can see why I was referring to that. It's not just forgotten me. You have forsaken me. In this Psalm, Psalm 43, why have you rejected me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you refuse to answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And remember again what he said in Psalm 42, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And later in Psalm 42, when he makes the appeal to the answer God gives us with his presence, it's his loving kindness in the daytime and songs at night. And so when he says here, Oh my God, I cry in Psalm, four, in Psalm 22. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Those are the places where I'm needing to find comfort. And, and let me just mention one other thing that in Psalm 22, where he's making this appeal, where God has rejected him, where God has forsaken him, he says, I am a worm and not a man. This is in verse 6 of Psalm 22. 
I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And it's mystifying to me that 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 I and I do this as much as anyone else. It's mystifying to me that I do it just like anyone else. It's mystifying to me that we completely overlook that this is the standard experience of those who follow God in the Old Testament. This is the way that it happens. And I and and it's so obvious because the one book where this happens most obviously and clearly is the one everyone comes to as if it's an anomaly in the Old Testament. Well, you know, there are all those laws, and then there are all those prophets, and then there's that weird book where God betrays his own child, the one he loves. Why would he do that? Job. And that's the point of the book. It's not different. Job is not different from Abraham. Job is not different from Moses. He's not different from David or different from Israel, who are supposed to sing these songs saying, God, why have you rejected me? Why have you forgotten me? It never stops there, but it does begin there. And so in Job, you have the, you know, God is forsaking me kinds of statements. Uh, when, you know, when he has, I'm laughing now, it's thousands of years later, surely it's not too soon, right? Um, but the point is, he goes through this miserable experience of loss for, for his family and himself, and and then his friends surround him and start telling him what's wrong with him. And he says to them in response, this is in Job 16, what miserable comforters they are, you remember the lines. And then he says, in addition to that, he says, so you're all miserable comforters. If I speak, my pain is not made better. It's not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? In other words, I, I'm miserable whether I speak or not. And you guys are doing nothing for me. Surely now God has worn me out. And he has made desolate all of my company. All I have nowhere to find comfort with the people who are around me. He's facing those who are opposing him, adversaries who are wagging their heads at him. He has, he goes on in, in Job 16, Job does, to say, he has shriveled me up. He is witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath. He has hated me. He's, Job is saying, God hates me. God, why do you hate me? You see what I'm saying? It's the same as this psalm where we're saying, God, why have you forgotten me? Worse, why have you rejected me? He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. This is Job. It's the same idea. They're wagging their heads against him. The same idea as in Psalm 22, and the same idea as these enemies who are saying, oh, yeah, where's your God? How is he, not, how is he helping you now? And Job is saying, there's nothing I can do. What am I supposed to do? You're not comforting. The people who are surrounding me are being enemies and not friends. You're miserable comforters. And there's nothing I can raise against God to solve this problem. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. That's what Job says. I was at ease. Everything was fine. And he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target, surrounded me with his archers. 
He slashes open my kidneys and will not spare. He pours out my gall, the, my guts, basically, my, my uh, fluids on the ground. He breaks me. With breach upon breach, his army is breaking through the lines of my being over and over. He runs upon me like a warrior. My, my, my point is to say, for one thing, out of the book of Job, to make the point that this is not an exceptional case. Boy, wouldn't you hate to be Job? I mean, do you get the line that Jesus says to those who say they want to follow him? If you would follow me, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross. He might as well have said, take up his shards and start scraping his skin. It's the same point. Job is, so anyway, you get the idea. I can say it over and over again, but hopefully I've hit home by now. Okay, there's number one, the problem, that we are brought to a position where not only do we have people who are opposing us, but where God himself, at least in the psalm we're supposed to express this, appears to have rejected us. And so our experience is what we express. Why have you rejected me? Why have you turned away from me? Why do I go about mourning all the day long and so on? There's the problem, easily understood. Second, even, easily understood. You, know, you get what I'm saying. Intellectually, it's easy to grasp. Then the solution is what I pray for. That's what I desire. Here's the solution I would recommend. So for God, and this is, this is simple enough, for God to invite us into his dwelling. So, Lord, you've rejected me. Open the door and let me in. I'm, I'm facing a crisis. I need help. So in verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Open the door. Let your light spill out into the street where I'm suffering here. Let your light find me in this dark wilderness and guide me back to your tabernacle, to your temple. Send out your light and your truth. Again, in verse 3, part of the solution. Let them, your light and your truth, lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And that, this is, you know, your dwelling is your tent, your mishkan, your tabernacle. So he's saying the same thing. It's the same image as in Psalm 42. I've, lo- I've lost you. I've lost my way to you. So I'm trying to find my way back and I can't. So, and, and then I knock on the door and you won't open the door. Why have you rejected me? Send, open the door. Send out your light. Let me find my way back to you. Let them lead me back to your holy hill. This is the place where the, where the tabernacle would have been set up and then later where the temple was built. And, and, you know, when this psalm is written, I don't know which way that is because we don't have a superscript for it. But to your, to your holy hill and to your dwelling. So let me in. And, the, and I think this part of the prayer is mimicking what is answered by God in Psalm 42 when he gives us uh, at night his song so that his song is with us. So he gives us the, the light and the truth that leads us into his presence. We have that light and truth on the way to his presence. Now, I'm not trying to extend the metaphor between the, before, uh, beyond where the psalm takes it. This seems to be the whole point in the psalm because he's going to remind us at the end, just as he does in each stanza of Psalm 42, that he's still cast down. He is still in turmoil. So in those difficult positions, 
he recognizes that he can still have the light and truth of God, that he's not desolate and alone. And so that the, the phrase in Psalm 42, at night his song is with me, I think is similar here, but the metaphor is not song, it's truth and light that God is providing for him, even while he's out in the darkness of the wilderness. And, and, and let, me, let, let me emphasize this even more clearly. Uh, so I, I think sometimes we're nervous about this language as if we're generating our own solutions or something, not recognizing that if God is real, and of course he is, then our praise of God can be a powerful realization of his presence. Meaning when we're, and look, I get it. You're going to get uncomfortable for a minute, but I'm about to quote a verse so you can take some ease in this. The point is we might be uncomfortable thinking that praise, our praise for God could actually change us and bring us to a place where we can understand what he's doing in our lives where we didn't before. I don't even know why that would be a surprise. This is why in Ephesians 5, we are supposed to sing our hymns to one another and encourage one another. I know we like to say, and and it's a fine phrase. I'm not trying to critique the phrase, but we like to say, oh, when we sing in church, we sing to God. Well, we do, but we also sing to each other. That's the language of the New Testament, encouraging one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, Other people are supposed to hear it, and you're supposed to be doing it for their benefit and for yours. And it does bring benefit to us, and here's part of that benefit. So let me give you an example. I said the truth and the light that we're talking about here in Psalm 43, verse 3, or his song in the night, at night his song is with me in Psalm 42, verse 8. And I was mentioning to you that those things are given to us even while we're out in the wilderness, that we're looking for them. Just consider the language that shows up in in exactly the same context where where David in, in that Davidic messianic psalm, Psalm 22, is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what else he says? He says, yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. And if you don't recognize it, you know, in the King James, the translation, and it actually is helpful because the word enthroned, you know, has a context to it that we're not as familiar with, and so we might just miss what he's saying. The word for that is not a high and lifted up haughty word. It's a word for reclining in, for where a person dwells, for what they inhabit. And so that language in the King James reminds us of that. You inhabit the praises of your people Israel. And that, that's Psalm 22, where David is talking about himself being a worm, experiencing this rejection from God and saying to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right in between those two statements. I'm a worm, and you have forsaken me. He says, yet you are holy, and you dwell in the praises of your people. Praise before God. This becomes really important in a moment in this psalm. It's important here. Praise before him is his dwelling place for us to be in his presence. 
when I used to do weddings, I would capitalize on this metaphor in a different way. I used to do weddings. I still do weddings every once in a great while. Um, just, you know, you, old church members will ask or every once in a while a student will ask or something like that. And so I'll do a wedding. I love doing weddings. They're fun. Partially because there's zero pressure. Nobody cares about the preacher at a wedding. Uh, they're totally focused on other things. So I can do whatever I want to do. I mean, I can completely botch it up and nobody will even notice. Anyway, with all that said, I mean, I've called weddings funerals before and gotten away with it. So anyway, the point is, at weddings that I do, and I love doing weddings, but when I, do, when I would do weddings, one of the metaphors I always capitalize on, sometimes in the rehearsal, sometimes in the wedding itself, is saying that what we do in having the wedding ceremony is construct in that ceremony itself a, a little house, a little tabernacle within which we dedicate this relationship to God and in our community, we dedicate those individuals to each other, and that the ceremony itself is something of a gazebo that we've constructed so that we can recognize the gravity, beauty, and uh, intentionality of this commitment that this couple is making. And it's the idea that in our expressions and in our ceremonies and in our actions, sometimes we construct little dwelling places where we enter into the ceremony and recognize the special nature of this place we're inhabiting in this moment using the language of place and, and uh, dwelling or tabernacle as a substitute for the time period that we're giving to this sacred moment, to this ceremony that we're having. And that's what praise is. And, and in the Psalms, it's described this way. Praise before God is this dwelling place that we construct. We construct this little tabernacle of praise for God when we lift up a prayer or when we lift up a psalm, when a, when a little group gets together and they sing their song together to God, they're constructing this little tabernacle in that moment. And the amazing thing is that God chooses to inhabit these little dwelling places that we construct of our praise for him. You inhabit the praises of your people. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. And that's in the context of him saying, I'm trying to get to your dwelling place. I'm out here in the wilderness where I'm struggling and alone and I can't get to you. And in, in this psalm, it is, would you send out your truth and your light to me so that I can be in your dwelling place by being in your truth and your light, even while I'm out here in the dark street? And in the singing in Psalm 42, it is, and in singing this psalm, while I'm out here in the street, you bring me into your presence because you come into this little tabernacle of praise that I'm offering to you. It is a, it is a beautiful image that the sons of Korah construct and that we get to see in light and truth when we remember God even when we're in the middle of all of this struggling and suffering and, and doing without and being rejected as we think. And, and it is, it is a reality. I mean, Job experiences being rejected by God, right? I, I'm not saying God doesn't love him the whole time. Obviously he does. That's why he's going through what he's going through. And yet what God is doing with him couldn't be described as anything else but being rejected, that Job is rejected. And so when, so for us, to turn our attention to his praise is just a natural part of what this psalm is always inviting us to do. And so the psalmist says that. In verse 3, it is, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. So what do you do when you come into his holy hill and his dwelling? Not because you finally arrived at Jerusalem and there are no more problems. I'm surrounded by the walls of Jerusalem and Zion is glorified. No, it's not that. 
I'm still out in the street, but in this little tabernacle of praise that I have in this, in this case, this little uh, shelter, refuge of light and truth that I have in the presence of God, what do I do? I offer sacrifices. I offer praise. So in verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to the altar. Now I'm in his dwelling place, so I go to his altar. To God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with, and what do I have out here? Do I kill an animal and offer the blood in the middle of the street and say, well, y'all can't see it, but I'm offering this tabernacle of praise, so it's okay. You know, we'll just spill the blood in the street. It's not that. I offer you praise with the liar. And even think of the language in Hebrews when he reminds us that the, the praises, the, the sacrifices, the offerings that we give to God can come from our lips. And that's what's happening here. And so I will praise you with the lyre, oh God, my God, in verse 4. So, you know, what, and, and this is the thing. When my enemies were haranguing me and I was out in the street, it makes sense that my prayer would simply be to get away from my enemies or for God to vindicate me in the presence of my enemies. I mean, it makes perfect sense that my attention would be given to the thing that's right in front of me. Well, what's in front of me when I'm praising God? Well, if God is what's in front of me, then why would I be giving attention to my enemies? What attention would my enemies rightfully receive when I'm in the presence of God? And so, so another example in the New Testament, and I think this is appropriate, and, it, and it's invited, especially by the context of Psalm 42. It's just begging for us to mention this. The song at night, which is mentioned explicitly in the psalm itself, but in the New Testament plays out in the experience that Paul and Silas have in a Roman city, a city filled with adversaries, uh, so opposed to them that they're thrown in prison for what they're doing. And there are all kinds of parallels and comparisons I want to make here. And, and when I was on the radio when, when back in the day, we actually did the long comparison between what Paul and Silas experience at Philippi and what the messengers of God, the two messengers who show up in Sodom, experience there. And that's supposed to be a comparison that's made and that we're aware of to see the difference in the outcome the total destruction of Sodom, but a different uh, result in uh, Philippi because, uh, partially because of what we recognize in what is happening in this psalm and what's happening with their singing to God at night. And that means that they have a different response to their enemies than they would otherwise. So in, in Acts 16, what happens is this, you know, Paul and Silas have gone into the city, Again, Philippi is a, is a Roman colony. There's, there's not even a Jewish synagogue there. That's why the Jews are praying outside of the city, and that's where they find Lydia, who's not from Philippi. Lydia, the convert in Philippi, is not from Philippi. She's like Lot in Sodom. She's a sojourner there. And so all of those things are parallel with what's going on there. But anyway, Paul and Silas, they, they start staying at Lydia's house because she's converted and her family's converted and all that kind of stuff. And then they're out in the streets and they find opposition in the city because the Romans don't want them preaching what they're preaching and it's going to impose on their income and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so, in, so they throw them in prison and in jail that night. This is what happens, Acts 16.42. About midnight, Paul and Silas were doing what? Because God has given us what in the presence of our enemies? He's given us what when we're out in the wilderness and in the darkness and we can't figure out where things are going to go right? You're in prison in a Roman colony. Things are not going right. And what are they doing? They're singing the song at night. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. 
and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so now we expect the judgment of God to come down and destroy their enemies. So the foundations of the prison were shaking. Okay, earthquake, destroy the enemies, God. Surely that's what will happen. All the doors are open, everyone's bonds are unfastened, but when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors were open and is ready to kill himself to accept the judgment that is his, and he deserves, because he supposes the prisoners have escaped, Paul cries with a loud voice and says, "Mm, you're not a problem, because we've got a song in the night. I've got light and truth. Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, and you know he's converted, and the result of that is that even his enemies are comforting him. They are encouraging him. Have you read the end of the book of Job? I'm just saying, it's not hard to see where this ultimately has to go. And so in, in, in all of this, Paul's suffering is what invites the conversion of the Philippian jailer and this establishment of a church that's not just Jewish sojourners in Philippi, but the city having an outpost of faith in it. Uh, you know, the, the response to our enemies is completely different when we remember that we're still in the presence of God, even when we're out in the middle of the street or as we were in Psalm 42, out in the middle of the desert. And so there's still hope, not hope constricted to when God has finally solved our problems. Not that, but hope now while our soul is still cast down. That's why the psalm ends the way it does. Psalm 43, verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall And the word is again, that word in Hebrew is still yet and again. It means all of those things. So he's saying, I will continually, again, still, yet, praise him, my salvation and my God. That's who he is to me. This is the point. In Job, for instance, after he's made his complaint, why have you forsaken me? Why do you hate me, God? In Job 19, what does he say? I know my redeemer. This is not when it's all resolved and Job has found his peace. This is not that. This is still making his plea. Why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God. This is the hope in God part. In Job 19, it's that statement we all know. I know my redeemer lives and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Even after my skin has been destroyed in my flesh, I will see God. I'll see him for myself. My eyes shall behold. See, I hope in God. I shall again praise him. My, ho- my eyes shall behold him. Not another's eyes, mine. My heart faints within me. He's still in the position. Why are you cast down, oh, my soul, when he says that? But when he gets to the end of his book, do you remember what happens with his enemies? Because his enemies have wagged their heads before Job. They have taunted him. They have said, you deserve this. You say you need God to come and bleed your case, but he's apparently forsaken you and forgotten you. And Job says, you're miserable comforters. You think I can't see he's forsaken and forgotten me? I know that. And yet I still hope in him. Remember all these statements about how Job sinned not with his mouth? Even when he's at the beginning of the psalm, help me with these enemies even when he's in the middle of the psalm, why have you forsaken me, O God? He's not sinning with his mouth. 
He's still coming before God with this reality that I will hope in God because I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so what does God do with his enemies? Because if you look at Psalm 43, there's no way to miss this. The beginning of the psalm is, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and the unjust man. Deliver me. And then there is no reference to those people again. The enemy is not the problem. So once I'm praising God, God is doing what he wants with me and with my enemy, and I am encountering God and the fulfillment of what he wants from my life, which, by the way, what does he want from Job? And this is part of the point in Job 42. When when his enemies, when Job's enemies show up in the story again, after Job has put his hand over his mouth and been silent and repented in dust and ashes, and, and now God is restoring his fortunes, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to the enemies, Eliphaz, the Temanite, these men who pretended to be his friends, or maybe were, but they became his enemies, his adversaries, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for, for, for you have not spoken of me what is right, and my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take some bulls and rams and go to my servant Job, because Job is the messianic figure here. Job is the one who's going to intercede on their behalf. Go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept his prayer. This is, surely you see Jesus in this, right? You see what, okay. I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naamathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Job, and in this psalm, it's the same way, did not become the messianic figure, did not become the little Messiah, did not become the Christian, as we would say it, the little Messiah, to his friends until he'd been rejected by God. He was rejected by God, and yet he covered his mouth to trust him. He was rejected by his own friends, yet opened his mouth to pray for them. And we're not going to be like Christ until we learn to carry our cross for the very ones who are weighing it down while it's on our back. And we'll never manage to carry that cross until we learn to look past the enemy, past the pain, to the one who is still on his throne. With our attention turned to God, how can we end up focused on anything but Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at berrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.